This is an ABC podcast. Max Beck for many years was a magistrate in the Victorian legal system. Magistrates can be intimidating figures, set up high on a bench. Due deference must be paid to them and to the court. They sit in judgment over flawed human beings, sometimes very flawed human beings, and you might wonder what they can really know of human nature from that lofty position. But Max Beck had more than an inkling. Max grew up in a country pub in Bendigo, where he saw all kinds of people come and go. And this was in the 50s and 60s, in the era before the motel, when there was a pub on every corner that would host clientele from prime ministers, Supreme Court judges, to salesmen, vagrants, refined ladies in hats and gloves, and broken-down alcoholics. Max and his sister knew every nook and cranny of that old pub they grew up in. They almost succeeded in burning it to the ground one day while exploring under the stairs. Max learned how to sneak out of his bedroom window on the second floor and take his dad's car for a spin in the middle of the night. Many of the things he saw and heard at the Crown Hotel in Bendigo stayed with him as he went on to become a country lawyer and then a magistrate. Max has written a book about his highly unusual childhood, and it's called Around the Bend I Go. Hello, Max. Welcome to you, sir. Yes, hello, Richard. Uh, wonderful to have a chat with you. I am a bit slow on the uptake, Max, but I've just, I've just noticed that your title, Around the Bend, bend I Go, ben, Bendigo. Is that that's obviously an intentional pun, is it, sir? Yes, it is, but please drop the sir. <laughs> just call, call me Max, if right. you don't mind. Max, what did your dad do before he became a publican? He was a violin player, and he played in the pit orchestras of the silent movie theatres in Melbourne before the talkies came in. And, of course, when they came in, he got the sack. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack beat him. And uh, eventually he became a manager of a hotel and uh, became an owner of hotels. And the Crown Hotel in Bendigo was the last one he bought in 1949 when Australia's rabbit plague was at its peak. Why wasn't he sent <laughs> off to war? He'd had an accident uh, and almost written himself off in his Buick that he was driving. He hit a tree and uh, crushed uh, his lung on the left-hand side and that caused him to be medically disqualified. And how did those injuries affect him later in life? Not adversely much. I only recall one occasion when uh, I was on a plane trip with him to Wynyard in uh, Tasmania and as the plane rose and the air pressure altered, the air that was trapped in his bad lung expanded and caused his good lung to stop operating and he had grave difficulty in breathing and uh, that caused a real problem. But when the plane came down, the problem resolved itself and he just walked off and was as good as gold. And so he ran pubs during the war. What was the first pub he ran? The first one he had was the Imperial in Castle, Maine, which was owned by his father and he managed it for a period of time. And then after that he went to Seymour and he managed the Canadian Hotel over there. And that was during the war when the American troops were on furlough often at Seymour and uh, they used to march into town and dismiss in the main street outside the pub and just storm the place and uh, he did very well out of that. Well, they saw the sign, the Canadian, and they thought close enough to North America and (laughs) they went in? I think that had something to do with it, yes. How did these American servicemen conduct themselves in your dad's pub? Well, there were so many of them, they'd be 10 or 15 deep behind the bar and the, the guys at the back couldn't get to the front to buy a beer, so they'd have to hand the money down the chain to the fellows in the front who refused to leave the 
the front of the bar because A, they could buy their beer there easily and, and B, they could act as an agent to, for others. And as a result of that, they refused to leave the front of the bar and when it came time to urinate, they just peed up against the bar. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what did your dad do about that with all this kind of urine splashing around on the uh, front bar floor there, Max? Well, he resorted to laying sawdust all around the public side of the bar and that helped considerably because there was a lot of beer spilled too, as you can imagine. And what did you do with all that sawdust at the end of the week? Well, at the end of the week, he had lost a diamond out of his signet ring that his wife, my mother, had given him. And he decided that he would put all the sawdust through a sluice, a water sluice, to uh, see if he could locate the, the diamond. And, and not only did he find the diamond, he found that, that there was a great quantity of coinage mixed up into the sawdust as well. And every Sunday thereafter, he, he used to sluice all the sawdust <laughs> and, and it made a considerable uh, non-taxable profit out of that. So there was gold <laughs> in all that urine-soaked sawdust at the there bar? There was. There was, Richard, yeah. <laughs> Normally publicans have to be pretty personable people who can get on with human beings from all walks of life. Was that your dad? Yeah, that was him. He was a great raconteur. He loved people and uh, he really enjoyed running the pub and being uh, Mr Hospitality, but he was a guy that wouldn't stand any nonsense. Like how so? Well, bad language in the presence of ladies was a Mm no-no. If anyone got excessively drunk and caused trouble, they'd be out the door or that style of antisocial behaviour, he was on it, onto it straight away. So after the war, your family moved into the Crown Hotel in yes. Bendigo. Yes. How old were you at this point? I was four at that stage. And my sister, she was uh, some 16 months older than me. Yeah, we were very young. But the first thing my dad did when he bought the Crown was to rip out the old beer pipes because they were made of lead. You can imagine <laughs> that people up till then must have been getting a dose of lead poisoning because <laughs> even a small amount of lead doesn't do you much good. No, it makes you mad and bad, as they say. Lead lead poisoning does. And they needed to be led down in the cellar because they had to be flexible to uh, tie up to the barrels. So he pulled them out and and replaced them with modern nylon pipes at the time. With you and your sister growing up in this pub as little kids, your parents must have been pretty busy running the joint. Did you get to see all that much of them in that pub? No, no, not at all. In fact, they were so involved in running the place that we saw very little of them. Um, It was a very busy hotel in the bar and it was very popular. The actual residential side was also extremely popular prior to the coming of the motels, the first of which came in 1956 in Oakley and Melbourne, but much later than that before they got to Bendigo. And the house was full of guests every night. So there was a big dining room which set up to 60 people. There was a large kitchen that my mother looked after and organised and they were devoted to the tasks at hand and my sister and I were basically left to uh, run free. (laughs) I remember in, you know, Barry Humphrey's memoir he talked about in the 50s doing productions of Twelfth Night, I think, with Ray Lawrence and he was one of the, I think he was Malvolio or something in Twelfth Night touring around country Victoria and he he talked about staying in pubs, country pubs, he says, and this was before the time of the motel. You'd have a teetering wooden wardrobe, very, very high ceiling, and he said, and you'd fall asleep in a bed with a pillow impregnated with the effluvia of a thousand commercial travellers. <laughs> Does that ring a bell with you? <laughs> no, it doesn't. The Crown was a bit more upmarket than that. <laughs> so my father at one stage decided, because of competition from motels, I think, 
decided to upgrade what he had was so it was all new mattresses and pillows. But uh, you know the downside was that there was no uh, en suites attached to the rooms. Anyone who wanted a bath or a shower had to go to the common baths and showers and toilets. So he installed hot and cold water in each bedroom in the mm-hmm. form of a, a small sink and, and hand basin. And that was a sales point for him for a number of years before the motels caught up with him. He um, renovated in his way the bar when he took the hotel over. So what he wanted was more space so men could come in and enjoy vertical drinking during the six o'clock swill. So <laughs> he knocked out walls and things uh, to enable that. The dining room uh, sat 60 people, as I mentioned, and uh, all the walls were uh, lined with uh, wood panelling. There were lovely Victorian sideboards. The tables were set with linen and um, good cutlery, uh, cruet sets, and lovely um, serviettes, linen serviettes, folded in the shape of a crown. The waitresses were dressed in black with white cuffs, white collars, white apron and a white cap. Menus came out in a silver frame for the tables, and it was a class class act. <laughs> How were the staff with you and your sister? The staff were, were terrific. They acted many times uh, in a de facto parental relationship with us and took us under their wing, even taking us home to their places on the weekend or uh, during the afternoon break and, and taking me even on fishing trips. They were an important input into my life. Who was the naughtier, you or your sister, Max? Oh, without doubt, it was me. <laughs> there was no stopping me. There was, it was a public hotel, a public place. So nobody, I couldn't be locked in. It was impossible to lock me in because there were so many exits. And I had the, the hotel was right in the central business district of Bendigo. So I had the free range of all the streets and the parks, uh, which were nearby. I could uh, come and go as I pleased. How many pubs were there in Bendigo in those days? There were 72 when oh my dad God. bought the crown. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. <laughs> so it was a massively competitive environment. What did your dad do to make the Crown Hotel in Bendigo stand out? Well, it was very competitive. There were 12 pubs within about 250, 300 metres of the Crown. And he decided that what he would do was have the best product and his beer would be better than anybody else's in the town. He was very particular about bar hygiene Every morning, all the beer pipes would be flushed out with detergent and then clear water and then the first couple of beers would be run and and thrown away. So the the beer was first grade and it wasn't always in pubs back then. He advertised, he had barmen who were were great when it came to service and uh, he was a man who always ran a straight hotel. There was definitely no gambling. There was very little serious drunkenness, although occasionally there was. It was a well-run pub and it became known as a, a place where you could go and get a, a beer and to be looked after and uh, it was a civilised place to attend. Was wine served in those days? No, hardly ever, except maybe in uh, dining rooms when you might, the ladies might order a glass of Porphyry Pearl or Matus Rosé <laughs> or, or a Pim's number one cup. But that was it. <laughs> There's no fancy wines back then. In those days, as you said, there was that bizarre Australian phenomenon known as six o'clock swill in pubs. Did you see that unfold and see how it worked? Definitely, yeah. I, as I got older, I was shanghaied into serving behind the bar and that could happen to the licensee's children. They were exempt from the usual licensing laws. And when I was 12, 
I was uh, serving behind the bar during the six o'clock swill. And now, uh, this was a one-hour period, pretty much, wasn't it, between people knocking yep. off work and 6 p.m. sharp yes, when, yes. when the, pub would, the bar would have to close, right? Yes, that's right. The bell would be rung at 6 to say, 6 o'clock, gentlemen, please, time, gentlemen, please. In 15 minutes, you had after that to drink your last beers uh, before the final bell was rung. And, of course, a feature of life back then was that the bar was absolutely full of smoke because everybody smoked. You know, more than 95% of men smoked and smoked heavily. And at the end of the day, with a glass of beer, they smoked a lot. <laughs> uh, so it was a, a very uh, unhygienic existence, I can assure you. My, my dad remembers, my dad told me stories about what the six o'clock swill was like. He, he remembers like <laughs> yeah. walking to a bar where the beers would be pre-poured and lined up in the bar. Indeed. And men would neck yeah. as many as they could, they possibly yeah. could, and then, sort of, and then drive yeah. home to their families uh, in a kind of hair-raising way in the... And the right. cars that they had. Yes, well, the drill was you could buy as many as you wanted before 6 o'clock, but you had between 6 and 6.15 to drink them. So before 6, you could buy six pots and line them up, and then you could drink them in the next 15 minutes. <laughs> so that's, that's what happened. What sort of people would come to stay at the Crown Hotel in Bendigo? Well, in its heyday, we had quite a number of distinguished guests at the, at the Crown. We had quite a few Supreme Court and County Court judges and... Knights of the Realm, uh, Sir John McEwen, Deputy Prime Minister, Albert Dunstan, and Victorian State Premier, police superintendents. Uh, Did you have famous actors come and stay? We had uh, Gladys Moncrief, an uh, opera singer. We had Frank Thring, he stayed. Frank Thring stayed there, did he? He stayed. I know exactly the room he stayed in. Did you leave it in good order? Oh, he did, yes, he did. You mentioned your dad started out playing violin in cinemas for silent movies, which would have been quite a lovely way of life in many ways. It would have been quite a, uh, like a dream-like existence. Once he started running pubs, did he perform music in those pubs? Yes. Well, he, he uh, built a little stage in the dining room and he performed concerts in there during uh, important days such as Christmas, Easter, Cup days. And he had an entourage that he shanghaied into uh, coming in there and playing with him. There was one bloke who used to stand on his head and sing and drink a glass of beer. He could also play the concertina. We had a, another guy who was a one-man band. There was a piano player. Uh, there was a singer, a fellow by the name of George English, who was absolutely brilliant when he sang, although in ordinary life he could hardly put two words together with his stuttering. During Christmas I was uh, purloined into singing uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, at other times, my star act was uh, singing I'm the Sheik of Scrubby Creek. Oh, Chad Morgan. And, and the old Chad Morgan song. Chad Morgan. That is one of the funniest <laughs> songs ever written in this country, I would That's say. That's right. Yeah. So I had these uh, false plastic teeth that I wore while I sang the song and a big floppy hat, and I acted the part of a, uh, a stupid country yokel, which uh, seemed to come fairly naturally to me at the time. When your dad used to take his music show to prisoners at Bendigo Jail... Were you and your sister part of the show as well? We were, yeah. And my sister came with us and she did a tap dancing routine and I sang my songs. The prisoners were very appreciative. What would your dad perform for them? Well, his star act was uh, performing the bagpipes on the violin. Now, that's hard to imagine, but... I, oh, he what now? I, he used to, how do he you used do to, that? How do you, I, don't know, I can't picture that in my head. <laughs> he would undo the hairs on the bow and he'd pull them or, or take them over the top of the violin and the, the actual bow itself would go under the violin. 
so that when he dragged the hairs, every string in the violin would be played at once. Right. And he was able to create a droning effect. And then at the same time, he'd take his coat off and turn it inside out and he'd have a feather duster as a sporran in the front and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and a goose feather in his hat, which he punched inside out. It was an absolute hit. And one of his key uh, uh, performances was Home Sweet Home. And he had this wonderful introduction to it, which took maybe 10 minutes, how he explained how important home was and how you miss it and how you'd like to be there. And I remember back at the prison when we were performing there, the prisoners, I think, were just about crying at the end of his homily about home sweet home before he'd even started to play it on his violin. So then came the day you and your sister decided to explore under the staircase. Tell me what happened that day, Max. Well, we um, were very young at the time, but we were told never to go under the staircase. That was a no-no, and there was no electricity under there, no lighting. So we somehow found some candles and went in there with these candles to explore. And it was a great place to explore because under there were stored Christmas decorations and, and other things that we used for Easter and so forth. And it was an attractive kids' play area, you might say. We were called away, it seems, because we forgot the candles and eventually they burnt down and set fire to the place. So the fire brigade was called, but in the meantime, it was just almost on the six o'clock peak hour, my father shanghaied all the men from the bar into doing a bucket line. There was one line in with taking fresh buckets of water and one line out taking the empty ones back to the water source. And uh, it, they worked furiously, these guys, till eventually they got the fire out before the, the fire brigade arrived. Do you remember this uh, or is this something that's been told back to you from your childhood? Oh, I, re- I remember it. Well, don't worry, <laughs> being one of the offenders. What were you thinking when you were watching the, the fire break out? I wanted to die, I think, is what <laughs> I thought. <laughs> I wasn't uh, very happy at all. But the only, the only damage that was really done, apart from all the, the paper stored in there, was to my father's um, bar takings because he had to shout the bar several times <laughs> for, all, for all the help. <laughs> and what was your punishment for almost burning down the whole pub? <clears throat> well, I can't remember. I don't think we were punished much at all because we were both very, very young at the time. You mentioned in your memoir that the pub employed a character that was known as a useful. What, what is a yeah. useful? Well, a useful does all the, the jobs around the hotel that nobody else wants, like picking up horse manure. There was a fair bit of that back then cleaning the toilets, uh, doing basic bar work, restocking shelves, uh, chopping wood for the wood fire. And, and there were five wood fires throughout the hotel, cleaning them, restocking them, setting them each day. So there was a, quite a lot of jobs he did. Some were less than useful, but the two that were important to me were uh, there was a chap by the name of Danny Morrison who, who taught me how to box. Danny was an ex-pug. And by that, I mean he was a former professional, in inverted commas, boxer, who boxed in the um, boxing tents that went around the agricultural shows and Easter shows. At that stage, when he was working there, I would come home from school uh, quite often with a blood nose or a cut lip or a black eye, much to my father's amusement, who would do nothing but laugh at it. (laughs) Danny was more concerned, and he decided he'd teach me how to box. He bought me a pair of boxing gloves and he'd get down on his knees and I'd have to box him and he'd block my blows and tell me what to do and what not to do. 
he was an important guy to me. He, he also bought me a dog. Was there a moment when those boxing lessons worked for you in a punch-up, Max? Oh, yes. Uh, several times they worked for me and then there were several times when they didn't also. <laughs> the other guy was a guy by the name of Barney Fagan. Both these usefuls lived on the premises in one of the old stables out at the back of the hotel. So they were always there for me to wander around with and annoy and uh, talk to. And Barney sort of adopted me and he uh, took me under his wing and on Sunday he would take me to church. <laughs> My parents were Protestants but Barney was Catholic and he would put me on his bike on the, on the crossbar and link me down to St Killian's Church and uh, to Mass on Sunday morning with my father's approval. Uh, and then after that, we'd go out to the lake and feed the ducks with the stale bread. And on one occasion when I was there, I fell in. Barney jumped in and rescued me. And if he hadn't have been there, I'm sure I would have drowned. And he was, he was a guy who taught me a lot. You know, he taught me how to swear. <laughs> he taught me, a, he increased my vocabulary considerably. Yeah, Australian men in those days had colourful phrases. You know, Barry Humphreys has adopted. My dad used to use some yeah. of them. Yeah, he used to say to me things like, son, you're as slow as a wet week or you're, yes. you're as slow as an old model to christening. I, I never knew what that meant at all. Do you hear phrases like that in those days, yes. Max? Yeah, yeah, Barney used to say, there's no flies on you. You must have got out of the, the wrong side of the bed this morning. I never could figure that one out because my bed was up against the wall and I could only get out of one side. <laughs> did living in a pub make it difficult for you to socialise with kids your own age, Max? It did in this sense that, that kids my own age uh, never came to play with me at the pub because uh, hotel environments back then were not a place where children should go to play. I don't think they had a day for that matter, but back then even more so. Um, so none of my mates could come around and play uh, there because their parents wouldn't let them. Uh, but I could, on the other hand, go to their houses and play. What did that mean uh, for birthday celebrations? Well, there was no point in inviting kids to come to a birthday party because they were not allowed to go. And the chances are the invitations be, would be refused. So my sister and I never had birthday parties. There weren't any. And uh, it was... We felt in that sense uh, different and, and somewhat isolated, you know, from, uh, from other kids. So you never had birthday parties, but what about Christmas? Well, Christmas was the same as no time at, uh, at all during my life as a, as a kid did I ever sit down and have Christmas dinner with my parents because oh, at that time they were flat out running the pub. In fact, I would be, if anything, doing jobs around the place to, to assist in that, emptying, emptying ashtrays and cleaning and wiping them and you know, wiping the, the tables and the lounges with a, with a swab and cleaning up spilt beer and that sort of stuff <laughs> I used to do to, to get pocket money. So you could learn, as a kid, you, you knew how to pull a beer and empty an ashtray. Did you miss out on things, though, in your social education? Yeah, I did, in, the, in this sense that in the, in the pub, in the pub environment when I was brought up there, we, were ne we never had to wash a dish, so I never learned how to wash dishes. My wife's taught me how to do that. <laughs> I've never, uh, never uh, made beds uh, or uh, did any cooking because nobody taught me how to make a bed or do any cooking. Uh, I had no supervision over how to use cutlery properly at the, at the table. Uh, you know, just little things like that. I, I had, uh, had no parental supervision in those things. I imagine, though, I think if you grow up in a pub, you would absolutely know... 30 seconds before any violence would be about to break out in a room or when something, when, when the mood of a room would go bad? 
Yes, I think you became a better judge of people over a period of time because you can imagine and uh, every day you meet new people. I mean, most parents would say to their children and rightly, uh, you know, don't talk to strangers. Well, we had to talk to strangers every day and there's a new lot of them every day to talk to. And they'd be asking us all sorts of questions and so on and uh, most of it was boring, but uh, we, we had to deal with that. What lessons or values then did your parents teach you growing up in this pub? Well, from my father's point of view, he, he, he taught me, he always used to say to do the right thing, uh, play a straight bat, uh, uh, be honest, and keep your word and pull your own weight. And he had all these phrases you know, that, he, that were all quite accurate and correct. Uh, and he was like that himself, you know, he, he, uh, he was a good role model to, to follow. My mother, she, she had a drinking problem, but she, uh, she was a very generous person, particularly when it came to giving things or money. Uh, she was less, less generous in relation to uh, hugs and affection. Uh, we didn't have much of that at all. But I, uh, I certainly as a child, because of all the jobs I had there at the hotel, had more money, I think, than most other kids my age. And my father was a, was a good remunerator. He, he paid me well for the jobs I did. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. So, Max, as you got older living in that pub, how did your mischief-making change in your teens? Yes, well, I became more adventurous. I used to sneak out of the hotel at night by locking the door of my bedroom and uh, going through the window and climbing down the cast iron sewage pipe. (laughs) Then I'd go up to Rector's American Cafe where there was a jukebox and um, have a packet of cigarettes and a a malted milk and... uh, and listen to the, the latest hit tunes uh, and play the... the <laughs> <laughs> so you're like Marlon Brando in The Wild One, are you, essentially? Yeah, yeah right. much, much like that. Having yeah. a cigarette and a milkshake in an American yeah, yeah, cafe right. in the middle of yeah, the night. Absolutely. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, how would you get there, Max? Well, again, as I got older, further older, I uh, used to exit the bedroom in the same manner and borrow my father's uh, 1949 uh, straight-eight Packard. It was a, a, a machine that had a three-on-the-three gear stick and an overdrive on each gear. So I eventually worked out that you could do more than 120 kilometres per hour in second gear in that thing, (laughs) as long as it was in a straight line. (laughs) Well, it it seems you weren't the only adventurous one in in your family. At some point you found out about your illustrious great-grandmother, Jane Dunstan. How did you find out about her story? Yeah, very much she was part of the family folklore. My father used to tell me the story about his uh, great-grandmother who had walked overland from Adelaide to the goldfields with six children. Uh, her husband had died before she left Adelaide and two other children had died over there. Her remaining six children, one of them who was just out of nappies, and her walked overland with a, with a bullock driver and a dray which carted all their gear to the goldfields. The Victorian goldfields? Victorian goldfields, yeah, from, from uh, Borough, uh, about 100 miles north of Adelaide. 
And this was a story which I thought was pretty amazing. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll check that out to see if it's true. And, and I did. I spent five years researching the story and I was absolutely amazed at what I found and the sorts of things she would have had to do and how she, how she managed it, even to get to Australia from Cornwall, from where they came, with their then, I think, seven children. It was an amazing story, so I decided to write a book about it. So she arrived from Cornwall with her husband and seven kids, you say? Yes. Yeah. In South Australia and then decided to go to the Victorian goldfields. Well, I had several years in Burra on the, on the copper mines and, and that gold hadn't been discovered then. And then when they heard gold was discovered, she decided then to leave and go to Victoria. And how did her husband die? Well, he had been a miner and he had worked all his life in the, in the mines in Cornwall and again in Burra in South Australia. He died of lung problems through the dust and stuff that he'd inhaled over a long period of time, over all his life. So it was the discovery of gold in Victoria in 1851 that encouraged her to take her remaining kids with her on yes. this extraordinary journey on foot from South Australia to yep. Victoria. What was involved in that trek? Well, most of the 99% of the time they were walking because the, the dray that they had had to carry all their gear, including such small items of life that they'd acquired before they left Burra, plus the, their equipment to camp and survive during, during the trip. They uh, took something like six weeks, I believe, to complete the journey. They would only walk at a bullock pace. There was probably six bullocks pulling the wagon. Uh, every night they would camp. But they weren't alone because there were many, many other South Australians trekking across at the same time. And each night where they, they would camp, they would camp on a creek or a river or a waterhole or somewhere like that because so, the bullocks had to drink. And uh, there'd be other people there and they would have evening sessions where someone might play a violin or a concertina or something and they'd sing. And then on Sunday they'd have church. Sunday they'd, they mostly didn't move at all unless they had to. And they would just have a day of rest. If you keep doing that long enough, eventually you get there if you survive. And, and that's what they did. And how did she fare once she'd arrived with all her kids at the Victorian goldfields? Yes, well, she married again and then she had two more children, so she had a total, total issue of 11 children and uh, eventually she finished up with 49 grandchildren. You mentioned there while you were growing up in the pub with your mum and dad, your mum was an alcoholic. I wonder how, how difficult that was for her, living in a pub. Yes, yeah, well, it was, and it was for, for my sister and I too. I, I didn't appreciate early early on when I was younger, that she had a drinking problem. The first time I really became aware of it uh, was when she turned up at parent-teacher interviews at, at high school, quite inebriated, and, um, and that was an embarrassment to me and I'm sure to her too. Was she openly and, alcoholic or did she try and conceal it with those kind of little tricks that some, sometimes alcoholics use? Well, she had to conceal it in the end because my father did everything to try and stop her from getting drinks, but uh, uh, earlier on she would just buy whatever she could from the bar or get whatever she could from the bar. But I, I can recall one of the worst of it was not once but several times my sister and I had to help her upstairs to go to bed, be one of us on each side, and there'd be three steps up and two steps back and 
as it go on till eventually we made it to the top landing. That was traumatic for us and particularly, I think, for my sister more than me. This was not a, not a good time. Were you angry with her at the time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was. And I had arguments with her at the time and I remember once I had an argument and I jumped on my bike and left home and <laughs> I got out to the Whipstick Forest of some distance outside Bendigo and uh, built a campfire and t- sat there all night and smoked a packet of cigarettes and rode home again the next morning. <laughs> just to be out of the house and be in nature yeah. instead. Yeah, just to think, I guess, yeah. yeah. I remember talking once to a scientist who was telling me the importance of nature for kids because if things aren't good at home, you, you can go out into the bush or to a forest and yeah. be aware of a world that's much larger than that of your <clears throat> families. It's, an, it's, a, it's the perfect escape in some ways for a a difficult family situation. Yes, yes. Well, I used to enjoy very much going on long bike rides by myself over the weekends. I would ride to Heathcote from Bendigo is the longest distance I did, but Castlemaine and back and other country towns around, and I enjoyed the solitude and, and just the bush and, and the sense of achievement it gave me to to do that. How old were you when she died? I think I was 14, 15. And what do you think about her now, looking back with uh, the benefit of years of life yeah. experience and as a lawyer and as a magistrate now and um, seeing, seeing human, so, so much of uh, human, mm. flawed humanity in the course of your long career, Max? Well, I feel very sorry for her because I don't think she had an opportunity in a way to get away from, from alcohol given her circumstances and... Uh, I mean, she had been more than 20 years living in a pub by the time she died. Um, I think uh, it was an environment that she couldn't cope with, you know. She was a person who was suffering from depression in the end. The black dog followed her around and I remember seeing her standing in front of a mirror crying with a cigarette in one hand and a, a brandy in the other or a scotch or something. And I'd say to her, Mum, what's wrong? And she would say nothing, you know. And I, to this day, I, I don't know her full story and I never will, but I'm sure there was more to it than I knew. Perhaps it's best I'd never find out. How did your dad cope with losing her and then raising you and Zelda on his own? Oh, he was devastated and he blamed himself, you know, for it. And... Money probably had some blame to share, but not as much as he adopted. And he became uh, deep, deeply grieved, and he he suffered um, a psychotic grief, in my view, for six months at least or more. My sister and I, at a very young age, spent a lot of time sort of supporting him and keeping him going in our own strange little juvenile way. We did what we could. But he came good after a while and soldiered on. And how about you? What impact did her death have on you? I, I mean, sometimes in these circumstances, a child, this might be a terrible thing to say, but might even be relieved. Well, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think a lot of my grieving for her had happened before she died. And she had been an embarrassment to me on more than one occasion. And, uh, you know, uh, it was a, a sense of relief, but also a sense of extreme grief too. I mean, I, 
I cried like hell, you know. And it was a terribly mixed up sort of um, time I went through. But you are right in saying that there was a sense of relief. How do you remember her at her best? She was a very uh, generous lady and she was well loved by everybody. She would do anybody a good turn. I mean, if somebody came to the kitchen door at the back of the hotel and they were down and out, she'd invite them in and give them a free meal and she would contribute to uh, anybody who needed help. She was that sort of person. So, Max, when did you decide law was what you wanted to do with your life? Well, it wasn't until the very end of my high school education that I thought I'd better do something with myself (laughs) and I thought I'd get into university and and try law. And it wasn't really a a thing that I did passionately at the time. I was hopeless at maths and arithmetic, so science was out uh, and the only thing left for me was humanities. And I didn't particularly want to be a teacher. (laughs) I'd had some bad experiences with them anyway and some good ones too I might add. But I thought, well, I'll give law a go. And it was kind of like that, except that my father was always saying to me, be a lawyer, son, you know, they make plenty of money. <laughs> and he, he always counselled me to do that. My father supported me through university, but to get some money to spend during the year, I uh, worked in various jobs. Probably the most important one I had was up at the Snowy Mountains. I worked there two years in a row as a labourer on the pick and shovel. Uh, veranda camp it was called the other side of uh, Cancoban in the Jihai Gorge and uh, it was a it was a fabulous experience there were so many people there from other countries kind of like the United Nations there were there were Greeks and Italians and Yugoslavs and Irish and uh, even some blokes from Papua New Guinea who were learning how to drive bulldozers one bloke had a pet dingo and um, they were a really interesting bunch of fellows it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Was that dangerous work? It could be. I remember once we were digging a trench, a big deep trench to lay a huge concrete pipe in to collect water from a tiny little dam to send it down the mountain to the Jihai Gorge. And as we were shoveling or digging out something at the bottom of the trench, one of the blokes yelled out a warning, get the hell out of here. (laughs) So we clambered up the trench to the surface and as we did, the mountain fell in and, <laughs> and filled the trench right up to the top. So that was the closest shape I had up there, except for the times that I had with tiger snakes, uh, the uh, tricks that were played on various people with them. There's a guy up there, who's, his name was Billy Payne, and he was a tiger snake wrangler. <laughs> he, he, uh, he was my foreman, and his thing was to catch tiger snakes and to play tricks with them. On one occasion, he caught a snake and, and crushed up its fangs so it couldn't bite anybody. And then he came up behind a, behind a bloke and shoved it in his pocket. Oh, <laughs> it was still very much alive, you know. <laughs> I never saw that happen, but I heard that story told many times. And he, he told me himself a story how he was, he'd caught a snake and he was driving back to the camp with it in the bottom of the Land Rover. And he was taking it back to play a trick on somebody and, Suddenly it came alive and started twisting around the, the pedal in his leg. Oh, so he, he, he stopped the car and opened the door and went to jump out and he had his seatbelt on. <laughs> because the Snowy Mountains were the first people in Australia to have seatbelts. <laughs> uh, the wet canteen there was very popular every night. And on this particular day, Billy Payne had caught this uh, 
tiger snake, quite a long one, and he skun it like a rabbit. By that I mean he, he took the skin off so it formed a long sock or like a hose, you know, tied it at one end with cord or string, filled this sock with sand and then tied the other end, then shoved it in his shirt and then went, went, went into the wet canteen, waited till this guy was either his best friend or his worst enemy, uh, had a huge tray of, of schooners and as he was heading back, <laughs> hit him around the neck with this snakeskin full of sand, <laughs> wrapped around three or four times. And the schooners went up in the air and all hell broke loose. <laughs> so he was a total bastard, in other words, oh, like that. No, he's a good, he, he was kind of, but he was a good bloke. You know? He was a good bloke. So once you completed your law degree, where did you hang your shingle first, Max? Uh, back at Bendigo in my dad's pub. <laughs> in the pub? In the pub, yeah. Was the pub well, still being? Or like, did you want to sit no, up in a corner no, table he, or he, something he, or what? He'd surrendered the licence right, by then. Right, And he'd turned the hotel into uh, shops along the front. And one of the vacant shops was uh, taken over by me rent-free and uh, I started my practice there. Was your dad still somewhere in that pub building? Yes, yes, he still lived there. He had his uh, little flat out the back and his bedroom upstairs. And all those people you'd seen coming and going over the years, did they, some of them end up as your clients? They did. Yes, oh, indeed. So, some of the people I'd, I'd went to school with and, uh, and uh, indeed uh, people I'd, I'd seen over the years uh, had come into the hotel uh, and people who, some of them who were even staying still at the hotel because there were still some residential clients there, uh, even though it, <laughs> the place was very much, much diminished from its heyday. I think um, if you work, uh, live and work in a pub for all those years as a kid and then work as a lawyer and then as a magistrate, do you arrive at a kind of a view of human beings, a humanity in general, their inherent goodness or badness or brokenness or loveliness? What, Max, what, do, you, do you have any kind of philosophy on, on that? Well, I kind of do, I suppose. That I think that, that no person is so bad that some good could not honestly be said about them. Now, <laughs> I still think there are probably exceptions to that rule because I have seen some particularly bad ones. But, uh, you know, that's the way uh, I approach people. We all have our, our faults and our flaws. None of us are perfect. But um, some of us have some marvellous uh, characteristics that are worth highlighting, you know, and I think that's how you deal with people. And you listen to them and give them time to tell their story. When you were growing up in Bendigo, it had, what did you say, 72 pubs and three palatial cinemas of a kind? Yes, yes. Now there'd be a lot fewer pubs than that. I'm guessing there'd be a multiplex there. There'd be fine dining around Bendigo. It's kind of a wealthy tourist city these days. T- it wealthy is. tourist town. It's, it's a lovely city. Uh, yeah. yeah. Has that world gone entirely? Do you see that old Australia as, as another country now? Yes, I suppose I do. It's it's um, it's part of history, you know. I mean, I'm now in my seventy ninth year. <laughs> I've lived long lived long enough to live through history. Uh, I was born through uh, born at the time of the, the Second World War, and when Australia was going through its uh, worst time in history, and uh, the time after that was a special time when the country was recovering, and uh, it was indeed quite different to what it is now. It's historically an iconic period. It was a purple patch for me. 
and I was very lucky to live through that period. I do miss the the old picture theatres, but I I live I lived in that part of history, and I regret that it's gone. It was a great time to be alive, and I and I also um, was lucky, you know, to live through the rock and roll era, and and. Uh, the time after the war was a time when, for the first time, young people, uh, young kids, were called teenagers. Before that, they, they weren't teenagers. So I was one of the pioneer teenagers, and I, I warmed to that very much. It was a great time to live. But I, I don't regret that it's gone. You've got to move on, don't you? Things change. Max, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you too. Thank you, Richard. Trail of broken hearts So parents do take warning And heed what I say Keep your daughters out of sight When I come round your way But they say I'm just like Casanova I drink, I smoke, I swear They say I'm the sheik of Scrubby Creek but I don't care. Just a smidge of the great Chad Morgan for you there. Thought it was best to go out on the dingo howl. Max Beck's memoir is called Around the Bend I Go. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.